everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. During the Ask Me Anything time or AMA time with Nick this past Sunday, May 3rd, we asked questions about the sermon and he had 90 seconds to answer each one. In this episode, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Nicole Kyle, our music and worship arts director, are finishing up those questions. This is a pretty jam-packed episode. They talk about Calvinism, civil disobedience, conversion, bigotry, and how to have unity among believers even when we disagree on topics. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We would also love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Ask Me Anything episode of the Engagement Quit Podcast. I'm Nicole. I am here with Nick. I am um, I am happy that it's Thursday and that we're getting to the weekend. I guess when you're listening to this, it's Friday. Even better. So um, we're going to talk through some of these follow-up questions. Uh, this week, we have a few questions that were that came through the um, the chat from from viewers, but we also have a couple that Nick, you brought up, and I guess you were just asking yourself anything you want to ask yourself. So, no, I just thought these were like <laughs> really key concepts yeah. that I didn't work out in the sermon, but that are very helpful in yes. my view. Yeah. So, um, a, a quick note before we move on. There was a question that we didn't spend a ton of time on during the sermon or during the service that specifically was about how to walk well with someone who is in the midst of suffering and how to help them think rightly and clearly. And um, you and Jill recorded an episode that was about that walking through suffering, whether it's you yourself or with someone else. So if you want to hear more on that, and you were hoping that we would cover it in this episode, we're not. Um, but you can listen to an episode that was released earlier this week, episode 189. Um, so just some clarification on that. And with that, we're going to jump in. So we'll start with some topics that were specifically related to the sermon. Um, and um, we this was our second week on First uh, Thessalonians. And the first chapter of First Thessalonians about our series is called Imitators and Examples. And Nick, you were talking through a couple, there are four parts to this first chapter that um, Paul is writing about of what it looks like to imitate others. And you talked specifically first on conversion and worship. So um, we're going to start with those. So the first question um, or the first idea to expound on is the, the dichotomy of conversion versus bigotry. So this is one of the ones that you just wanted to expand on a bit more. So why don't you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. One of the things that I, I was trying to get at is when people, when you talk about conversion, when people talk about conversion, um, they often don't think as opposed to what, mm-hmm. right? And what tends to happen is because people don't like the idea of people converting to things religiously speaking in particular, oftentimes because they associate that with conflict or a sense of superiority. So like if you want somebody to convert to your religion, it's because you think you're superior to them. And so they they feel like that has a general negative connotation or, 
um, if you're trying, if you believe in a religion enough to try to convert people, you're also, they think the sort of person who's going to create conflict. Mm-hmm. And so generally speaking, the it also conversions of various kinds have also been associated with um, historical events of imperialism and enslavement and things like that. For example, right. Islam, for Islam, for example, um, spread almost entirely through imperialism and forced conversion or what you might call highly incentivized conversion. Um, there have been times where um, where Christian-ish nations, right? Like they, they have gone and they've tried to Christianize people. Um, that's definitely true in the United States relative to Native Americans, mm-hmm. that people thought of conversion and modernization similarly in a way that um, – I don't really know how God looks at it. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not going to pretend I do. Um, I think that there are some, that, I mean, native peoples are in some ways just peoples and everybody who's ever received the gospel had to change their culture somehow to come in line with what the gospel teaches. And so every culture has had to Christianize in a sense that is moved towards sanctification. And I'm sure that native cultures would have had to do that if there was no imperialism at all in the people's bringing them. But for for example, for British culture coming to America, conversion meant becoming more British. Right. And there are probably versions of that that weren't helpful. Anyway, the point is, is that people often, the conversion is wrapped up in all those things. But, um, although Nick, I do think that's relative. I do think that's relevant for what you're about to talk about versus bigot as it is opposed to bigotry, because there are a lot of people who do look at those, those, parts of conversion as bigotry saying, and, and, mm-hmm. and you have to parse out. I mean, and this is, I don't know if we've talked about this on this podcast, but this is at because least they think if you want somebody else to convert, you are engaging in a kind of prejudice is what they assume. Right. And, and we do have to sort out. There are parts of our culture that will need to change if we are choosing to convert to Christianity. And there are other parts mm-hmm. that don't, that are, potentially, uh, maybe this is a too, too loaded of a statement to say, but potentially amoral that, so I, I mean, they all have right. to come under subject to Christian theology, but I, I think that that's yeah. part but, of why this irks people. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the three R's sometimes people use are that when you become a Christian, there are things already in your life that can be received just as they are. Some things that need to be rejected wholesale because there's right. there isn't much redemptive about them, and then other things that need to be reformed. Yeah, that yeah. is, there's something good about it, and you want to keep certain things, but it's it's going to need to change, right? So, but but here, here's what I'm saying is that if you think of the the very concept of conversion in that way, then it ends up being a circular argument because you're really against conversion because you're against conversion, right? You're you're against conversion because you, so for example, you're against people converting to Christianity. Not really because you're against conversion, because you're against Christianity, mm-hmm. like, you, like right, or or the or something you've associated with it, and because you've associated that with conversion, you're against conversion. But in fact, conversion. One of the things I argued in the sermon is that conversion is in itself the willingness to change one's mind entirely when it's warranted, and you've actually received persuasive reasons to change. Right, and so it's an it's an intellectually and emotionally virtuous action in which when you should change your mind, you do. And you do so wholeheartedly. You change your mind, you change your emotions around it, you begin to feel differently about it, and you begin to act differently about it. It's a whole change based on new and be- a new and better understanding, at least as far as you can know. It's both warranted and persuasive, and therefore you act, and that's good. Mm-hmm. right? Um, 
And so the the what whether or not conversion is a good or bad thing shouldn't be evaluated on the basis of the particular thing the person's converting about. That's totally different, right? So if conversion is the willingness to change your mind, heart, and lifestyle entirely when it's warranted and you've received persuasive evidence to do so, it's the choice to do it, right? That's a virtue. Then the concurrent negative vice is bigotry or the unwillingness to do so, right? Like bigotry is by definition, not believing something that's false. Like bigotry is essentially holding on to prejudice when you should have let it go. Right. Is essentially what bigotry is. It is to, for something to be bigotry, you should know better and you choose to hold on to the wrong view and to be stubborn and recalcitrant in it. That's bigotry. Yeah. And so in that sense, it is literally the opposite of conversion. Conversion is yeah. you have a prejudice. That is you, you made a decision, you believe something, it turns out it's not right. Mm-hmm. And then you change your mind. Mm-hmm. And bigotry is just the opposite. You believe something, you find out it's not right and you don't change your mind. Mm-hmm. What do you think, um, like in, in looking at those things, is there a, is there a, like pastorally, when I hear bigotry, when I, like I, that feels like a, a word that has a lot weighted to it right now in our moment in culture yeah. and in time. Like how, how do you think yeah. that that also influences our, the way we think about our willingness to be converted? Yeah, I, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those words, bigotry is one of those words where everybody thinks that it isn't referring to them. Right. Yeah. Right. To, I mean, to that end, when you were just talking about what bigotry is, I'm like, I do that all the time when I'm like fighting with my husband. <laughs> right. Like, I just right. want to be right. Yeah. And even if what he has said is persuasive, I'm like, no, I'm going to just dig my heels in right now instead. Yeah. 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 I mean, usually, usually the, the word bigotry when used precisely is related to a kind of idea or set of beliefs. Right. So if you just always believed you were right, just like that was always your prejudice. You're always right. And people show you you're not right. And you still cling to the fact that you're right. Mm-hmm. Formally speaking, that is a form of bigotry, right? And yeah. so one of the things that people, one of the things that people don't like about racism and bigotry and prejudice and all these kinds of things is they really want to believe that these are things other people do. And yeah. one of the, one of the reasons why um, this sort of social justice morality, which focuses on our social moralities rather than our personal moralities is popular from a fleshly, now there's lots of good reasons why certain parts of it are popular, but the fleshly reason why it's popular is people think they can do it without any effort. These are things they already don't do. And if this is the way people are judged good and evil, well, we're in luck because we're all good people because we don't do these stupid things. And it turns out you do all of them. You're like, like all of the people that don't think they're bigoted are bigoted about n- a number of things. Mm-hmm. People who don't think that they engage in a lot of prejudice are, inc- are incredibly prejudicial because that's how the human mind works. Right, we all have to make judgments, and it turns out every time we make a judgment that's false, that we've made on a fairly small set of data, it turns out that it's a prejudice. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't think prejudice is inherently bad. It's a it's a it's a function of nature. The question is, are you trying to make your prejudice are are your prejudices solid, or are they are are they changeable? Right. Like right. You, you have to mm-hmm. make all these kinds of decisions. So that's why, that's why open-mindedness is an important thing mm-hmm. because, but, but you could ask somebody who like doesn't believe they're prejudiced, but believes in open-mindedness. Well, why is it so important to be open-minded? 
like, well, you don't know everything. Be like, well, do you not know everything about things you think you know enough to have beliefs about? Well, yeah. Okay. So then what are those things that you have beliefs about, but you don't know enough to actually be right? Yeah. Well, didn't you judge before you had enough to judge because you're clearly wrong? Well, what would that be? That would be a pre-judging, wouldn't it? Which would be literally a prejudice. So, like, you know, like you start to work these things out. You're like, okay, so I'm prejudiced. I'm racist. That's why people get really upset when people say everybody's racist. You're like, well, I'm not racist. Well, what, well, it depends on what you mean by racist, right? Does racist yeah. mean that you you lynch people or that you block people's careers or that you're actively, openly, actionally opposed to another racial group because you believe you're inherently inferior, superior? Or does it just mean that like you don't like you have the normal human dislike for people outside your tribe who do things differently and don't seem to order their values just like you, and that tends to correlate with people who look differently than you? Yeah. And so therefore, you naturally dislike them or trust them less. Well, that's a natural, absolutely normal human experience and emotion, right? So anyway, the, the point is, is that bigotry is one of those things we none of us want to think is true about us, but it's true about all of us. We mm-hmm. all have things. And for a lot of us, it's in our politics. You can see it with people mm-hmm. who are at all partisan, right there. Because, you know, our, our parties are right and wrong all the time. right? Yes. And so when you think your party is right all the time, you, you're a bigot. I mean, in the general sense of the term and in a morally serious sense of the term. Right. And I, that's happened to me a bunch of times. Um um, both prejudices and bigotry relative to my political philosophy because my political philosophy made sense of something before I knew enough to know that the sh- mental shortcut I was taking didn't really work this time. Right. right. Well, and I think that your willingness to come come out of those things requires a lot of humility because you have to be willing to say, I was wrong before. And, and sometimes you right. made the best decision you could with what you knew at the time, but now you know more. And you're, right. you're choosing to change. And that, that's a, that is a, a challenging thing to do. It requires right. a lot of humility and conviction of right. I'd rather come, like I, I would rather come to this person with a posture of I'm going to honor God and, and submit to the fact that I was wrong than just have my pride about this thing. Yeah. Well, it, what it does too, is it like, it changes how we look at bigotry because we think bigotry is something that bad people do. Yeah. And if you're not a Christian and you don't already believe that we're all bad people, right? then that becomes kind of scandalizing because when you're like, oh, wait, I have bigotries, but wait, bigotries are things bad people do. Wait, mm-hmm. that would mean I'm a bad person, but mm-hmm. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. Like that's one of the reasons why understanding the Christian doctrine of depravity is so important. You mm-hmm. are a bad person. Mm-hmm. Judged objectively, morally, you're a bad person. You're, you are constantly damnable. Yeah. But God is shaping you and changing you into something different through the law of the spirit of life. And he is forgiving and reconciling you in the things in your life that are damnable. Therefore, you are justified by faith. And your main goal is not to decide whether you're a good or bad person, but to figure out what ways you're not like the Lord Mm -hmm. and what ways you displease God and are hostile to all men and women. Right. And how do you change? That's the goal. And and I think... um, it exposes again. I think I brought this up last week too, but it exposes again our we don't want to expect we don't want to accept grace. We don't want to be to have to require someone else giving grace on our behalf for us to be justified, but you have mm-hmm. to you have to be able to accept that in this. Yeah. But I, so the main utility of this clarification that conversion really is the opposite of bigotry is two things. One is you should be willing to convert. Converting is a virtue. 
right? Um, converting to the truth in all kinds of ways in every area of your life, whether it is apologizing to your husband or whether it is um, believing in the Lord or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, believing in a political view that's important or believing in a believing in somebody or whatever. Yeah. It is. Like when you should change your mind, you should change your mind. Yeah. And that's a virtue, not a vice. Yeah. And the opposite is bigotry. And so therefore the idea that if I argued with some, if I make an argument and say, Jesus is Lord and savior, you require his salvation. You should believe in him and become a Christian. Mm-hmm. And somebody says, you're asking me to be converted. Like you, what you want is conversion. You're proselytizing me. That's bad. The answer is no, it isn't not in itself. Mm-hmm. If Christianity is false, then to convert would be would be wrong and that it would be incorrect. Yeah. But it's not in in itself wrong mm-hmm. because the opposite of conversion is bigotry. It is like it, instead of conversion is changing your mind when you should, bigotry is not changing your mind when you should. Yeah. So I think just helping people understand that when people attack the concept of conversion, they're not really attacking the concept of conversion or they're confused. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Now, I feel like this goes without saying, but just to throw it out there, this doesn't mean that when someone says something like that to you, your response should be to shout at them. Well, you're just being a bigot. Like that's not, if you are in fact trying to share the gospel with them and convert them to Christianity, that's not going to help you. So, yeah, I don't think you should. I honestly don't believe you should ever call someone a bigot unless they have just called you a bigot and you're explaining to them how they're misusing the term. Yeah. Every once in a while, every once in a long while, sometimes I'll refer to somebody's view as a bigotry. Mm-hmm. In that, and then I'll define bigotry. Yeah, I, I do not think it's virtuous to use the word bigot, except for in very extreme situations. Yeah, I think it's way overused. I think it's just yeah. used as a slur. It does feel it's like a slur to win an argument argument without mm-hmm. making an argument. Yeah, and I think that it's. A, I think it tends to be very unvirtuous because the thing is, if somebody is uh, is a bigot, they're behaving as a bigot, calling them one usually does not help. No. And it doesn't, it's not going to encourage them to change their mind. They're usually going to, because if you call somebody a bigot in our culture, right, what you're doing is you're pressuring them. So you're acting like a bully. Yeah. But what's the proper response to a bully? Right. It's a hundred percent resistance. You don't give a bully an inch, even if you agree with them. Yeah. If a bully tries to move you in a direction that you even want to go, yeah. You 100% resist them because they have to realize that no matter what they do, you're they're never going to get anything from you, right? As long as they behave this way. Mm-hmm. But if they behave a different way, you'd be happy to be their partner, right? Yeah. And so if you call if somebody call, you call someone a bigot and they understand the basic dynamics dynamics of bullying, the proper response for them is to dig in their heels. Right. But if you really think the they're stuck in something they need to get out of and then don't do something that makes them dig in their heels more. Right. right? So if I come across somebody who's, who's has a bigotry about something, I don't call them a bigot. Yeah. It's like, it's like the first thing I don't do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. This is, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but we have a few more to get to and um, time has elapsed. So let's move on to the next question. So, um, well, this isn't a question. This is just another concept you wanted to talk through, which is um, joy as the universal and pain as the particular. Because as a reminder, the next portion of the sermon, we were talking about worshiping through suffering. So why don't you unpack this a little bit more? Yeah. So at the end of the book, um, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, he he talks about joy and um, 
And it's just the last couple of pages of the book, but let me read just a little portion of it. He mm-hmm. says, so Chesterton says this, the mass of men have been forced to be gay or in, in 1920, that meant happy about little things, but sad about big things. Nevertheless, and I offer my last dogma defiantly. Nevertheless, it is not native for man to be so. Man is more himself. Man is more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the superficial thing. Melancholy should not be an innocent interlude. Oh, sorry. Melancholy should be an in- innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotion, emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which we all must live. Yet according to the apparent estate of man as seen by the pagan or the agnostic, this primary need of human nature can never be fulfilled. Joy ought to be expansive, but for the agnostic, it must be contracted. It must cling to one corner of the world. Grief ought to be a concentration, but for the agnostic, its desolation is spread throughout an unthinkable eternity. And it, he, he goes on. It's a little hard to follow when you're not reading it. And you're just listening to it orally. But the, what, what Chesterton basically says is, for the agnostic, meaning is relative, right? And the universe is, in a sense, a meaningless cosmos. Mm-hmm. The meaning you find in looking at, at, like, for example, science or the night sky, and you're like, that's incredible, is a sublimeness coming from you, not it you are finding meaning in it relatively as an individual person. And you're this tiny little person inside a massive cosmos. The cosmos doesn't care if you exist. The cosmos doesn't have any meaning. The cosmos doesn't have any perfect purpose. You want it to have purpose and you can inflict purpose on it. You can choose to find things meaningful and to choose to find joy in things. But in so doing, grief or meaninglessness or despair is the expansive thing as big as the universe. And joy is the small thing as big as the human heart. What Chesterton says is that is literally exactly the reverse of reality. God is the great joyful one who creates the entire cosmos with his purpose and it pulsates with his joy in the curse, in a kind of local sense that is direct in, in, and really intense in our lives is the fact of pain is the fact of sorrow and mourning and difficulty. Mm-hmm. And now you can feel like pain is universal, just like you can hold up your thumb and block out the sun, right? So pain can feel like the big thing, mm-hmm. but just seems like it's important to realize it's not the big thing. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that is how joy in the Christian faith is supposed to work. It's it, it coming to God and recognizing the joy of the gospel helps you recognize that joy is the universal and suffering the particular. So when you suffer for your faith, when you face afflictions of all kinds, mm-hmm. the Christian sees that they are suffering, that, you know, their thumb is, if they feel like God isn't near, they realize their thumb is covering the sun, mm-hmm. right? They recognize that like the pain is still particular. It's close and intense, like yes. a bee sting, but it's not the world that exists. It's not really what's behind and beyond everything. The Christian recognizes through Christ that joy is ultimate mm-hmm. and pain in particular, even though it feels intense. And when you recognize that it reverses the meaning of the world and you live in a cosmos of joy. Yeah. And when that's true, every suffering is a latent momentary suffering. Mm-hmm. Every suffering is not worth 
preparing to the joy that will be revealed. There is no Holocaust that can block out the future glory of the sons and daughters of God in the presence of God himself. Mm. Right. Nothing can do that. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, it grounds Mm -hmm. faith. And so it's one of the reasons why both in Romans and in first Thessalonians, joy and hope are tightly bound together with each other and tightly bound together with perseverance. Right with living through suffering and thriving in life's difficulties because you see beyond the pain, the greater cosmos of joy. And I think that Chesterton is dead on in this. And I actually believe it's one of the greatest philosophical problems with agnosticism and atheism mm. is that it cannot see the dynamic in the world. It has no resources for it. And in fact, it naturally argues the opposite. And though I'm not saying that agnostics and atheists have to feel like the entire universe is meaningless, meaning because sometimes people be like, well, if you're an atheist, you have to be a nihilist. You have to believe nothing means anything. And the atheist will respond rightly, no, meaning is subjective, and I can find whatever meaning I want in anything that I find meaning in, which is true. But you can still ask the metaphysical question is, but does that thing mean that? Mm-hmm. Right? Is the meaning in the cosmos or is it in your mind? And if it's in your mind only is it as meaningful or is it really larger than your suffering? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the answer is it doesn't mean that mm-hmm. the cosmos doesn't mean that just your feelings do your thinking does your personal subjective meaning. And the, and so atheism can produce like any worldview subjective meaning just as humanity, just consciousness can create subjective meaning and atheists and agnostics are conscious just like all of us, mm-hmm. but to have joy be the ultimate and pain the particular is something yeah. that only a inherently teleologically meaningful universe can do. One that God has made and is full of his glory and therefore our joy. Yeah. So that I have sense. I have a couple follow-up questions. Do you did you want to say something before I asked those? <clears throat> nope. No. Okay. So um I just need to make sure I can remember them. So the the first is um so if, if pain is the, um, the particular, but it can feel really like the, putting the thumb really close to your eyes, it blocks out other things. How, like, it, is the response right to try and in that moment, remind ourselves of what is true? I mean, sometimes just the passage of time will help us to recognize that it was small, that it wasn't as large as we thought it was because our perspective has grown, distance has helped. Like, is it okay to, because I, is it okay to just allow time to work in that way? Or should we also in the moment be preaching to ourselves what is true? In in the passages we've been looking at in Romans and in First Thessalonians, and this would be true of Colossians and a bunch of other places, what the epistle is doing is preaching the gospel to that, right? That's what it's doing. Now, that doesn't mean that problems, the further you get away from them, the less acute they feel, or over the passage mm-hmm. of time you can heal and so on. That's all true. But the way, the yeah. mentality that the apostle is teaching is that we would see the beauty of the glory of God, that we would have, that we would boast in future glory, that that would be our boast, right? Like mm-hmm. it says in Romans 5. And that when our participation in future glory is our boast, it's our identity, it's how we see ourselves vindicated, it's our hope, it's the grace mm-hmm. in which we presently stand. That is the fact that we are facing present suffering by believing in the gospel. 
and believing it in our hearts and mm-hmm. com- and and feeding off of it through that faith. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. All the other things by which we naturally move through different kinds of sufferings like traumas or losses, like time and acceptance and those kinds of things. Yeah. Those are all still also true. Yes. Yeah. Cause I think I, I'm thinking of the, um, the idea that time heals all things. Like, I mean, you hear people say that. And even for me personally, I, I've experienced that, but I do think that sometimes when I do that, it's more because I'm just like, I don't want to deal with it in the moment. It's harder to face what is true in the moment than it is to allow some time to go on. And then I don't feel it quite as acutely. Now, sometimes if I'm having like a a reaction in a fight with my husband, I'm just reacting in anger and I do need some time. But so I, I feel like it gets a little tricky and a little bit messy, but I think there's something to doing the work in the moment that allows you to experience a joy and understand a beauty of God and a beauty of the gospel that you don't get to have if you don't put in that work right there in that moment. But it is hard. Yeah. Man, there's a bunch of things I want to say to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like when you're angry and you and you try to take some time and get some distance or when you something bad happens to you, the reason you need the distance is because of a personal weakness. Right, the the full vitality of human strength would be to, in your anger, be able to do the right thing, or in the when somebody kind of throws you, and you, all of a sudden you feel anxious and kind of triggered, that you could still do what's best and good, right? Um, it, but it is true as a coping mechanism. Sometimes a little time, a little separation, a little time for your body to calm down, can really help, right? And to the extent to which we require that because we're in a presently weak state, nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if you what you have to say, if if you have a choice between screaming with venom at your husband and saying, "I don't feel like this conversation is going in the right direction. I can feel myself getting angry. We just can we just take a time out?" Um, and those are your two options. Then surely that can we take a time out is the better one. Yeah. Right. If instead you could feel yourself getting angry and realize it was rooted in your own pride and bigotry about the the view you want to have of yourself, and that you're not justified by works. But Romans 4 says, by works, no one will be justified. And therefore, there is no boasting. That is, you can't have your identity or claim your self-worth in that thing. But instead, the hope of future glory, when you'll be freed from all the things that are making you fight right now, is your real hope and identity. Then in a, you can find a humble frame and listen to your spouse, right? That's really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's very hard. And yeah. so, but that's the goal. The goal is not, you know, like, the goal is not to be one of these people that constantly needs a break mm-hmm. and like needs space and needs to unwind and needs to decompress and needs to like, I can't even, and I just can't. And maybe if I, right. The, the, that's, br- that's brittleness. Yeah. And, and you, you don't want to be weak and brittle. You want to be strong and, um, and flexible in the sense of like having that ability to bend and not break and snap right back and to do what mm-hmm. you're supposed to be able to do. So there's that. First of all, secondly, I also think that understanding sovereign joy as greater than immediate suffering allows you to deal with suffering a lot better. Mm-hmm. When that suffering is loss, it helps you embrace and tell the truth about that loss and grieve in it and accept it mm-hmm. in a way that you'd be tempted to avoid it or deny it. One of the biggest things I see trying to help people in counseling and help people work through the pains of their lives is all these things are painful. Mm-hmm. A lot of millennials will do this. Um, other people don't seem to say it, say it, but they 
they this is what they do is I'll I'll talk to somebody about their traumas and they'll just I'll say okay here's the road to recovery and they'll say I don't want to do that it just freaking hurts mm-hmm. or they'll use worse language than that yeah. and I've had a number of people both men and women just be like look I I know I had this homework I was supposed to do I know I was supposed to work through these things I just didn't because every time I try to do it it just hurts too much right. Right. Well, I think actually having faith in a greater sovereign joy and God's desire to heal you and all the truths of the gospel related to that thing can give you more courage to enter into that thing that's painful, Mm -hmm. to not deny something, to not repress something, to face whatever you need to face. Like I, I think that it actually helps strengthen you to deal with the negative thing in the present and not make it worse, heal accept, receive, believe, like all the things that need to happen so that you can thrive in suffering or in just the world as it is. And to be strong enough to do it and to be wise enough and for you not to get cold and hard, but become increasingly loving and tender. I think that, I think that living in a world in which the wider umbrella is sovereign joy rather than trying to muster up meaning in a meaningless universe Mm -hmm. through your subjective application of meaning is much more powerful and robust. Well, I think that speaks a little bit to what the second follow-up question I was going to ask is, which is, you know, how do we lament things that really are wrong, but not become overtaken in the process of lament? Because I think that I've done both things here. I think when I was first experiencing some old pains from my life coming up, I wanted to run away from it. And then on the flip side, I want, I just sat in it forever. And it took me a while to figure out how to do do how to lament rightly and grieve the thing that was wrong, but but to still have hope and see the greater joy and the greater sovereignty of God. So maybe mm. you could just speak to that a little bit because that, that's. Hard. I think that when people get, I think when people get stuck in what they call lament, I think what they're doing is is instead of truly lamenting, that they're making an application, meaning that they're applying for a response that they're not getting. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like when you're sad, when you're just sad and you cry and then you kind of run out of crying yep. and you're done, you were sad and then you kind of got on with your life. But if you feel like you were wronged and you want the wronged person to be brought to justice and you cry out for that person to be brought to justice, you've really made an application. You've said, what I need to feel better is for this person to be brought to justice. And then well, then that's open until the person gets brought to justice. It's not mm-hmm. resolved, right? Yeah. So I think good lament resolves in itself and does not leave a remainder of an action from the outside. That God needs to do X, Y, or Z in yeah. order for you to be okay. God yeah. has already done everything he needs to do for you to be okay. Yeah. And he's already promised he's going to do everything that you really need for things to be okay. And if you are applying for him to do something other than those two things, what he's already done and what he's already promised to do, then you're asking for something you're not going to get. And therefore your limit isn't going to end. You're going to end up wallowing. So if you, if you want God to like give you justice before final judgment, mm-hmm. then you're asking for something he didn't promise to do. Yeah. And he's not going to do. Right. And you, so you're going to, nothing's going to resolve for you. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. Um, okay, I'm going to keep this moving. Because we okay. we promised everyone we would get to Calvinism. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. That'll be easy. 
Okay, one just more. Just save a couple minutes for that. <laughs> yeah. Just probably just 90 seconds, just like on a Sunday. Okay. Yeah. Um, one more question specifically related to the topics from the sermon, which is um, what is the nature of the wrath mentioned in verse 10? Is it a cataclysmic worldwide event? So for people who may be tuning in without having heard everything, this is First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, which says... Um, I'll start at the beginning of the last sentence. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so the question is, is that wrath the, a future cataclysmic wrath or is it some kind of other sort of wrath? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that it isn't like a final judgment could be argued where in chapter two, Paul refers to the Jewish population that fought against Christian faith in Israel as um, displeasing God and men fighting against God's truth. And he says, God's wrath has come upon them at last as though it's something that's already happened. And so we know that there were a couple of famines during the years when Paul was writing the epistles and doing the ministries and things like that. And then in 70 AD, there was a huge reckoning in which many, many thousands of Jewish people were killed by mm-hmm. Titus and, and that that army. But, uh, it, but we don't really know what that refers to when he says God's wrath has come upon them at last. In this context, because it refers to the people turning to God and believing in his son from heaven, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath because Jesus is the rescuer from the coming wrath. And it's referring to his son who's going to, who we're waiting for from heaven. Mm-hmm. I think that the only way you can really take that is for that to be a cataclysmic worldwide final judgment. Right. And, and that believing in that is an integral part of the gospel, which is the point of those verses that you, you, the Thessalonians believed the whole of the gospel, which includes everything from Jesus dying for your sins to believing in the return of the one who God raised from the dead, who will rescue us in the final judgment. The belief that we will be rescued from wrath in the final judgment and given the eternal life of resurrection and all of that is part of the gospel. And he's saying that you guys believe that and you told everyone else you believed it. And that's part of the beauty of how you became examples to the whole world. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think you can take that wrath in that passage to be narrower than the global final judgment. Yeah. All right. Okay, so now we've got a couple other topics that are not related to the sermon. So the first one, um, I'm actually, I am going to bring us to Calvinism first. So here's this question (laughs) that was sent in. It said, what is your view on Calvinism? Which of the five points of Calvinism or TULIP do you agree with and why? Yeah. Okay, so... um... If you've listened to the Gage Equip podcast, you've heard me talk a lot of times about political capture, that your political ideology can be so singular that you kind of get captured by it. You think all your thoughts through that ideology and ultimately even your Christian ones. So like even your Christian thoughts have to agree with your political ideology or you can't think them, for example. That 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 ide- ideological capture, I've said in many situations, is really dangerous, Okay. Within theology, mm-hmm. believing too absolutely in a theological system of thought can be that way too. You can get captured by a theological system. 
such that everything that you think in Christian faith, everything you read in the Bible, every th- way you interact with every person, every church that you ever attend, everything you ever listen to has to has to flow through that filter for you to understand it and for you to accept it. And so I think that because of that, I generally will will not say that I'm a Calvinist. Not because I do or don't agree with any of the particular five points of Calvinism, but just because I don't want to be the kind of person who's captured by a single theological outlook, Mm -hmm. especially one that I think has problems. And I don't know of any theological outlook in the whole world of any church, of any group of people that doesn't have very serious problems explaining everything. Mm -hmm. Explain some things better and other things worse. Now, on the whole, of all the systems I know about at their best, not their worst, mm-hmm. Reformed theology, which is associated with Calvinism, I think is probably the one I find the most helpful mm-hmm. as a teacher. Yeah. But I don't ascribe to it with allegiance because I, I just think that's inappropriate. I, do, I yeah. won't allow myself to do that. I, my fundamental doctrine is the authority of, of the authority of Scripture and the gospel itself as laid out explicitly in the texts of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I try to stay really close to that and study because I, for example, I study the Bible way more than I've ever studied systematic theologies. Sure. There's a very right. good reason for that, as I don't yeah. want to get distant from it. So there's places where, anyway. So that's that's so when people say, "What kind of Christian are you?" I say evangelical, um, not because I want to get in a fight, um, <laughs> but because evangelical. What it really means, it has nothing to do with voting for President Trump or something like that. What all evangelical means is that you believe in the gospel the message of Christ's death and resurrection for us and in personal conversion that you yourself have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And secondly, bibliocentrism, that the Bible is the word of God written. Those are the two main functions of what evangelical mean. It means because evangelical comes from evangel, the good news, Mm -hmm. which is inscripturated in the Bible. Right? So that's why I will say I'm a biblical evangelical. And then if people say, well, but yeah, what's your theology? I'll say I'm closest to reformed theology. Mm -hmm. That's what I'll say. Okay. So so can you talk a little bit now about, which is probably what you were going to do, but can you talk a little bit about why you find Calvinism to be helpful in being a preacher or being a pastor? Or actually I think you said in being a teacher, but however. Yeah. Okay. I probably should say because of the questioner, like about the five points of Calvinism themselves. Mm -hmm. So tulip is the acrostic often used. So T stands for total depravity. Um, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. Now, a few of these are really strongly disputed as to exactly what they mean. Mm-hmm. So total depravity can mean total in its scope or total in its quantity. So total depravity can mean in all of our human faculties, we are affected by sin. It doesn't mean we can't do any good things. Or have any good emotion. It just means we're not as bad as we can possibly be. I mean, it just means that every, there isn't a human faculty untouched by sin, right? Others believe total depravity means that humans are as bad as they can be. Well, that's clearly false, right? The, to, and so part of this is you don't really understand some of these points unless you understand them in their backdrop of medieval theology. <laughs> Aquinas believed that of all the faculties of human beings, reason was the least affected of the human faculties. And therefore, reason was useful to come up with all kinds of truths because it was the least affected. And Calvinists or Reformed people rejected that. 
um, Luther, who is no Calvinist, said that reason was a whore because he believed what psychologists are now finding out that our intuitive mind actually is way more, way stronger over our conceptual mind, what we call our consciousness, than anybody ever dared believe. And so your your sort of instinctual, what, what um, evolutionary psychologists like to call your lizard brain, <laughs> you know the the parts of the parts of you that have really strong access to your emotions and hormones and so on, and they can they can like actually twist your thinking without you even realizing it. Like when you're mad and you think you're thinking really clearly and rationally, and you're really just thinking selfishly. That's driven by your intuitional mind and your like your sort of lower level mind, you might call it. And that affects your reason really dramatically, right? Now, whether that's an effect of the fall or whatever, it's a fact about how human minds work. Mm-hmm. And so Calvinists and and, um, and uh, Lutherans and people like that in, in the Reformation said, no, we're way worse, way, 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 way worse than we ever dare dream. And reason is not clear of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the problem. John Wesley, who was no Calvinist, believed that. Mm-hmm. Right, he said in relationship to Calvin's view of total depravity, there's not a hair's breadth of difference between us. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, similarly with unconditional election, un- some people believe unconditional election means that God decides arbitrarily, arbitrarily in His own sovereign will who will be saved and who will be damned. It has nothing to do with anything relative to the individual person. Right, and that that's what election means. Well, it just depends what you mean by arbitrary. Right. I mean can it really have nothing to do with the individual person or does unconditional unconditional election mean that we are not elected on the basis of our works? Because mm-hmm. originally that was the focus. People thought, yes, the Bible speaks about election, but God helps those who help themselves. God gives more grace to people who improve on the grace they've already received. For example, the council of, I'm sorry, the Synod of Orange condemned a semi-Pelagianism that basically said that, that like if God gave you a little bit of grace and you did something with it, he'd give you more grace. It was a, a means of getting salvation by works. And if you believed in election, you would believe that's how God elected people, that you would be responsive. So it's your responsiveness, your nobility that leads God to elect you. Mm-hmm. Well, in theory, at least, that's not the only reason God could elect somebody. There are other reasons in the human being themselves by which God could choose as his condition of election. So it depends on what you mean by unconditional. And that's a very complicated <laughs> argument that's been going on for like 600 years, mm-hmm. right? So if by unconditional election you mean that election doesn't happen on the basis of our works or personal nobility apart from grace, then I 100% believe in unconditional election. If by unconditional election you believe that God's election is utterly arbitrary, then I don't know why we would believe in that. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Okay. So um, limited atonement, the L, is the belief that um, – God, Jesus died only for the elect and not for the whole world. Mm -hmm. Now, so you see how, again, this gets to like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Right? Like, if you mean that the death of the Son of God was only enough payment for the elect, morally speaking, Mm -hmm. so that the wrath, that he only took that much wrath of God for those he already knew would be saved because. Jesus wouldn't, why should Jesus die wastefully? Mm -hmm. And you could also argue that if Jesus died for you and he actually paid the price for you and you rejected it, the moral profaneness would make your hell a hundred times worse so that it would be an act of grace of God, of God's deep generosity that you would own, that Jesus would only die for the elect so that it wouldn't increase the damnation of the damned. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. Okay. Now, People have, in recent times, renamed this particular atonement. 
or intentional atonement that when Jesus died for the sins of the world, he did not have the unelect on his mind and their damnation. He had the fact that he was dying for the elect, that it that this is a pastoral or Christological point about the intention of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and about his success in his work, that Jesus is no failure and Jesus is no waster even of his own pain. So you see, again, there are very, now I think, I think like, for example, John thinks three, three sixteen, where it says God, for God loved the world that he gave his one only son. I, I think that Jesus death, his atonement is sufficient for the whole world. Mm-hmm. I just don't see how that could not be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that biblically speaking, you have to maintain God's universal intention in, in salvation and God's particular election of the saved at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then all kinds of different theolo- theological groups will try to figure out how, how those can go together. Yeah. But this is why I think evangelical or biblical must precede the theological system. Right. You've got to believe in what the Bible says first. Right. And then if you can work it out philosophically, great. And if you can't, so much the worse for your philosophy, not for the Bible or for God. Mm-hmm. I, and I think it's better to believe two things. Because here's the thing. If God is trustworthy and he tells you something is true, he tells you two things are true that don't seem to go together, but he's 100% trustworthy and omniscient. Well, then you just believe those two things are true even if you don't know how to go together mm-hmm. and you try to be careful about all the implications you draw from them because you know, the other thing's true. Right. So you stay pretty close to just what he said and you'll get too far beyond it. Yeah. And I think that's what we should do in atonement. The Bible is very clear that election is particular and specific and that God's desires for all men and women to be saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so I is irresistible grace that when God graciously draws the elect to the limited atonement, he does so in a way that overcomes their total depravity. Mm-hmm. And therefore the grace has to be irresistible or is irresistible because each of these people God draws this way will be saved because they're elect. Right. Right. No. Irresistible doesn't mean is doesn't mean um drawn by like the force. Like Darth yeah. Vader uh-huh. pulls them across the room. That's not what irresistible means. Yeah. What it means is is that it is irresistible to you because you will see its beauty. Yeah. So it's kind of like if I didn't have to worry about my weight and people said, somebody said to me, do you want some chocolate ice cream? That's irresistible grace because the answer is yes. It's always yes, 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 <laughs> yes, always yes. Not because the the ice cream has grabbed me and hauled me across the room, but because it taps into something in me that when that faculty is opened up to it, yeah, it wants it desperately. It sees its beauty and wants to enjoy its pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so the concept of irresistible grace is that God so shows himself to his elect by his spirit that he enables their faculty of seeing his beauty and glory such that they will be drawn like moth to flame irresistibly, Mm -hmm. but entirely volitionally and willingly. Mm -hmm. So the irresistibleness of the grace does not in any sense undermine the free choice of the person choosing. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you frame it that way, sure. Yeah. I believe in that because I believe that those who receive divine conviction, um, have the capacity to believe that they wouldn't otherwise have. But at the same time, I think there are biblical passages that speak of convicting graces of God that people do not receive, which I think depending on how you define this could be a real problem for that doctrine. So I have a, 
I have a mixed relationship with that doctrine. It could really just depends on how you frame it. Yeah. And the last perseverance of the states, I absolutely believe it. Yeah. That's the, I'm the strongest on that. So, so total depravity and perseverance of the states are the two I'm strongest on. Yeah. I absolutely believe the Bible says you have to persevere to be saved. Right. But I also believe that the Bible teaches that those who are saved are saved. Mm -hmm. Like they're safe in that salvation. Mm -hmm. So how do you put those two together? Yeah. That you have to persevere to the end to be saved. And the answer is the saints will persevere. Yeah. One of the one of the things that will happen if God unconditionally elects you, has died for you in the limited atonement, and brings you in irresistibly, and is working all those graces in his the providence of the Father, the death of the Son, and the work of the Spirit is that you will make it. You'll survive. You'll get through. You'll he will bring you to the end. He'll finish the good work he started in you. And therefore, the saints persevere. Mm-hmm. If you are truly a saint, you will persevere and be saved. So I a hundred percent believe in yeah. Pete. Um, and you've talked about that, especially recently in the texts that we've been going through. And so, and some of these podcasts yeah. we've been doing, you've been talking more about that. So, um, yeah, I, but I also think relative to, I, th- I think the biggest thing relative to reform theology, what makes in some sense reform theology, reform theology is God is big, man is small. Mm-hmm. And we are more wicked than we ever dared dreamed. And God is better than we ever dared yeah. conceive. However, many non-reformed people would say, well, I believe that absolutely. Yeah. So reform theology ha- does not have a proprietary ownership of that view. Yeah. It just tends movement-wise to emphasize it. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think it would be great to hear you talk about how, why you why you also find this to be helpful for ministry. And I've heard you talk about that before, and I do find that helpful. But um, – I think maybe we should save that for another time because I think you answered the questions that were actually asked and uh, there's one more topic to go through. So is that okay with you? Yes. Okay. All right. So the last topic is about Christian faith and civil disobedience. And then specifically, let's talk about that as it relates to either continuing, continuing or prematurely ending the quarantine. Sure. Yeah. So I've had a number of people text me and say, Nick, you need to open up church. Or um, don't you know that these um, quarantines are unconstitutional mm-hmm. and therefore we should stand up against them and so on. So there's, there's a couple things I want to say about this. Okay. Before you do that, I'm going to say a thing. I think okay. that it's important for anyone who may be listening to this to know that there if you hold one side of this view in our church, there's somebody else who holds the other view. And that, mm-hmm. and this is, I'm just speaking on your behalf right now, Nick, that you, maybe you wouldn't say this, but you're, you're in a position right now where you have to steward all of these people and you have to shepherd all of these people. And so, right. I mean, you, and you have your own personal convictions and you also have to answer to God on how you have stewarded this church. And so I think, yeah, yeah. And as somebody observing this, I can just tell you that everybody's views are super predictable. <laughs> so the likelihood that your view is somehow related to your capture is very high. Yeah. So for example, um, minority people tend to be much more pro um, sequestration mm-hmm. as long as they have enough money to live on. Yeah. And um, people who are Republicans tend to think that the, that the quarantines are completely unconstitutional, way overblown people who have ec- uh, educational backgrounds in medicine especially if those backgrounds are in pathology, epidemiology, and those kinds of fields, think that no one's being careful enough. Mm-hmm. Um, though, and, and most of the doctors that think we're like blowing this way out of proportion tend to be general practitioners. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's because they see the generality of disease every day in people and that you just can't save everyone. Yeah. And it's just stupid to try to do that. They have So even within medicine, there are people who have very different views of medicine right. and how medicine works and what it means to practice medicine and all that. Um, econ- people who have strong economics backgrounds or political science backgrounds tend to recognize that every public choice isn't a, well, what's the right thing? Can we save one life? Mm-hmm. Right. Public policy is always about, is always cost benefit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you make, no matter what, so if you take government, let's take the governor Evers. No matter what governor Evers does, people are going to die. Yeah. Okay. It's just fact. If he extends the, um, the sequestration, right. Our quarantine, um, people who need to be going to appointments for their heart problems and their breathing issues and other things, people who are more depressed. For example, we had a psychologist tell us recently that um, the the clients she's working with that are suffering from depression and issues related to that, um, they're doing much worse right. right now. Right. And she's very concerned for some of them. Right. Um, we've already had a suicide in our church since it started. Mm-hmm. We haven't had somebody die of COVID, but we've had somebody die of a self-inflicted gun wound yeah. because of depression. And so it's just not, so there's, there's no way that like Tony Evers, for example, can make a decision and be right Yeah. in the sense that he can prevent anyone from dying. Mm-hmm. He cannot do that. That is not a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so what he chooses is based on a series of trade-offs. And in some ways, he's not just trading lives for lives. He's trading future wealth yeah, and absolutely. emotional well-being. And all these things have values. Like if everybody in Wisconsin was 10% more depressed so that one person could live out of the 5 million people who live here, is that worth it? Right. Right. Maybe for a day, it would be worth it. But for a year, is it worth it? Right? How on earth do you make such a decision? Right. So on some level, people are going to have to make decisions based on their judgments. Those people are going to be people we've mostly either elected or have been appointed by people we've elected. So this comes down to a question in terms of civil disobedience for Christians. What is a Christian's relationship to the government, Mm -hmm. regardless of your political philosophy or beliefs? And the answer is, it is our job to obey the government unless the government explicitly and directly tells us to disobey God. Yeah. And therefore, the command of God must be a very clear and direct one. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, the, so the question is not, is this unconstitutional? Not for the Christian. Right, right. right. Now, as a citizen, you can say, I believe as a citizen, this is unconstitutional. Yeah. And as a citizen, I believe I need to do X, Y, Z as a good citizen. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. But, if, but that doesn't mean the church should do that as Christians. Christianity was set up originally to be a thriving religion under a totalitarian state mm-hmm. that was completely corrupt. Yeah. And that was killing them. Yeah. Right. And in Romans, in which Paul knows that the Roman state is killing Christian, he tells us to obey the government as though it was instituted by God yeah. himself. And so in order for us to disobey the government, the government, to do it as Christians, right? It's not just a question of whether or not we think the government is doing something wrong or something foolish or whether or not the government is doing something that is even unconstitutional. The issue is whether or not we believe the government is telling us to disobey God. Yes. Right. Yeah. Is is this quarantine in obeying the government and keeping separated during it telling us to disobey God? That's the question. If the answer is yes, we should disobey the government. If the answer is no, we should not and we can't disobey the government. Now, this gets a little bit more complicated when you say, okay, but in a democratic republic, what it means to obey the government is a, a wider picture of what it means to be a good citizen. 
Hmm. Right. And so, so because there isn't just, there's, there is no King, right. There is the, the government, which is a broader thing. And that government is supposed to be under law, not above law. The whole point of Western democracy is, is that we are under the law so that no man is over the law and therefore over all of us. Mm-hmm. And so should I, as a Christian citizen do X, Y, or Z? Yeah. Right. Well, that's a different question. Right. But I do so. So I I do think in the coming weeks and months we will have Christians who believe as citizens they should be engaging in civil disobedience. Sure, it's possible that if the quarantine is lifted, there are people who are more conservative in terms of the the disease may feel like they should engage in civil disobedience or protest that the that the quarantine should go on longer. Or, right advocate for this or that policy. I think in that case for the Christian that we need to do that civil disobeying in the most virtuous way possible. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that as Martin Luther King said, that we are trying to win over the people we're protesting against, not demonize them and Mm -hmm. push them. We're trying to create the beloved community. We're trying to get people to come together as much as possible. And we're trying to bring that person over to ourselves. So I think it's important to, to behave that way. I think Christians should be, to choose not just what they do, but how they do it. Right. Mm-hmm. With that kind of prudence and reverence. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, you know, we've talked about, especially when we were going through the book of Ephesians and we were talking about how we were reading through about the dividing wall of hostility being torn down and how we experienced that in some ways in our church, maybe at least most um, acutely right now, politically. And I think this is an opportunity for specifically for our local church, for High Point Church, to to practice that in this way too, to be able to disagree with one another about this situation and still have love for one another and kindness for each other, even if we're going to disagree and try to persuade the other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, especially within the church. I mean, listen, mm-hmm. I've had conversations with like small group leaders and people like that already where there have been divisions. Um, the last two conversations I had actually with people who were interacting with small groups, one of them was talking about how um, people who of Chinese descent or Asian room descent feel concerned that they're going to experience acts of racism in America. Right. And somebody somebody or some group of people insisting very strongly america's not racist mm-hmm. like that's that's not true well like this is a classic perspective thing right yeah. like if you're if you if you came from a country that was really racist right and you feel like america's like a dream come true yeah. you're going to feel really strongly about that but if you're Ch- a chinese or chinese eth- like ethnic look you look ethnically chinese I mean, you only need one nut job out of 350,000 people to make an example of you. Like, so, so you, you don't have to believe that like America's a racist country against Chinese looking people, like at the rate of even 3%. Like if it's, if it's one out of 10,000 and you run into that person when they're feeling like they want to express themselves, you could be that you could receive that event. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I, I think racism and acts of racism by nut jobs is still can be felt intensely by a person, right? Who's, who's Chinese, even though a, like a white person or another person or somebody from a more racist country might be like, this country's not racist at all. You can both be right. You're, you probably are both right. Yeah. And so listening with just more 
empathy and like trying to put things together that sound like they're opposed, not being so captured by your political views, trying to understand where the other person's coming from and not taking offense. Mm-hmm. Like all of these virtues are really important. Another situation we had just had a person who was one person was from a more Asian country that functions more in a more collectivist way. And they were talking with some other people who are historically Anglo-American who are used to a more like, don't tread on me, cowboy spirit, the government serves us, not we it kind of way. And just that different cultural feel of, well, we're all in this together. We're all one people. We're a society. So we should do what's best for the society versus, no, that's not how this works. Our country is a country of individuals who make choices freedoms and liberties. America is a different kind of place. Don't you see? Mm-hmm. Well, they no, they don't, yeah. they don't see. And so you, you can't, you've got to, both sides should recognize that you've got to be loving in how you try to help people yeah. see what you mean. And also you got to work hard to see what they mean. And oftentimes the things just are not contradictory. Yeah. They're right. just different perspectives. And, and also if somebody feels a certain way, especially if that way is, ang- is rooted in anger and fear, just attacking them isn't helpful. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to work very hard for the unity of the believers. Yeah. And if we get that right, then we might be able, you know, it's like, I think it was like that Jordan Peterson rule for like, make your, like, make sure your life is like in order before you start criticizing the world. Mm-hmm. You know, if like, if we could be unified as just the church, totally, just in the church, mm-hmm. We should get that straight, and then we might be able to, to help the world be unified. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. And that's one of the things I really love about High Point, having a diversity of people and differences of opinion. But we've got to steward that well. We yeah. need to thrive in it and beat each other up. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. This is this has been a really – I have found this to be a really helpful conversation on um, all these different and like as you were talking just now i'm like well this is very relevant to conversion and bigotry like this is these are things that we're facing right now and dealing with right now yeah, it just shows and it shows you also how much damage being politically captured or theologically captured can be yeah and trying to build a church for all people right because it naturally makes you rejectionary and exclusivistic and bigoted mm-hmm in how you deal with people that you could be much more easily more open-minded with. And you're not giving up your view even. Mm -hmm. You're just understanding where they're coming from a little better and being a little bit sympathetic towards it. And there's no way we can be part of racial reconciliation, bringing down the walls of hostility, helping people from different economic groups, helping men and women get along with each other, turning the hearts of mothers and fathers to their children and children to their fathers. You can't do any of that if you allow yourself to be bigoted in the narrow nature of capture of any kind, other than being captured by beauty of Jesus himself. Yeah, absolutely. Who is always going to cause you to be expansive. Yeah. Right. While being very rooted. I mean, that's one of the weird things about Jesus. Jesus is super conservative and super liberal. Uh He's super rooted and super transformative. Yeah. Like there are all these things you definitely know as a Christian and a million things you don't know. And you're like working through in a new way every single day. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way it's supposed to be. And I, and I find it actually really cool because it, it feeds and works through human curiosity and yet keeps you grounded enough to find a certain amount of security. And I think we're wired for that mm-hmm. and made for it. And I think that, I think that we should pursue it as deeply as we can. You know? yeah. So anyway. yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for talking through these questions, Nick. Thanks everyone for listening and for asking them. I hope that you find it helpful. Again, I, I do did and do find this conversation helpful. So we will keep doing these um, and 
we hope that you are finding ways to thrive even while you're just yeah. at home. <laughs> yeah. I, at the beginning of the podcast, Ashlyn says things like, you know, tell other people about the podcast, but if there's a particular episode you think is great, then sometimes telling people about that one episode saying you should hear this one episode and then they can choose whether or not they want to subscribe to the podcast. Yeah. But some that'll, that leads to a lot of subscriptions. If you send people one episode. Yeah. All right. Good talk to you. We'll see you soon. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.